Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today's guest is Francisco Valdez. Frank is a philosophy student at San Francisco State University. We met on Twitter, and Frank was kind enough to join me to discuss phenomenology. He's actually met and corresponded with uh, Shlavoj Zizek. Um, he's gained a little bit of traction by sort of creating a synthesis between the analytic and continental philosophical traditions. I did my undergraduate um, degree at UCLA um, in the philosophy department, but um, since UCLA it, itself is famous for their analytic, uh, and well, their analytical training, since you know, Putman, uh, Russell, Carnap, um, Kripke all taught there and you know created bigger ideas. Um, well, that's where I got my foundation for an analytic philosophy there but um but yet they have different departments such as um uh the complet uh the french department the german department um they all have uh heavyweight um continental philosophers and that's where i gained most of my continental uh philosophy tools from there okay due in part to um this this notion that, that you know I, I got bored with analytic philosophy because you know it gets boring <laughs> and um and uh that's where I started working with the synthesis between both like a pluralistic approach uh as it's known but um but now that I'm in graduate school at San Francisco State uh University getting uh, my masters uh I've worked out and still continue evolving but it's it's fleshed out enough that it people have started paying attention and, and started uh gathering traction and um and, and from there just you know it just took off today we'll be keeping our primary focus on a broad overview of phenomenology and if we have time we'll riff on some corollary topics frank can you give us a perhaps a broad definition of what phenomenology actually is it's something that I definitely kind of struggle to describe and, and completely understand myself. So I think uh, our listeners could definitely benefit from a more scholarly approach. Oh, I could try. Um, uh, in reality, no one knows what phenomenology is. Um, well, what it means, but uh, um, everyone has their own uh, definitions. But um, mine is that it's the it's the philosophy of experience, but between us and the objects in the world um because it, it it it's this rich tradition of of saying hey this objective you know of universe you know it's outside of our own and um from there we could see that some things you know in our experience are the same but meanwhile others are radically different and um it, like imagine if you will it's a, it well it is metaphysical a little bit epistemic too, but um, it's ontology, but ontology of the human experience. That's what I would like to uh, say that phenomenology is. Now, well, in my definition. Frank, would you say there's a starting point or philosopher that embodies or began the project of phenomenology? Well, it, it all goes back to Kant. Um, you know, Kant's like, oh, you know, let's... Let's take the good stuff of empiricism. Let's take the good stuff of rationalism, mix them together, and you have this, you know, this transcendental 
um, conscience, you know, just, oh, you know, oh, this is what life is, this is what experience is, and, and uh, this is how we deal with it in the world. Well, as we know, Hegel wrote the phenomenology of spirit in response to Kant. And, uh, and well, he said it, it was to build on Kant, but in reality, he kind of denies Kant, he negates Kant, if you would say. Um, and Kegel's project was kind of phenomenological, but it's more of an account of of how we are things in the world. You know, well, Kant started the whole things in itself, uh, things for itself and stuff like that. But um, it really didn't get solidified until Husserl, uh, Edmund Husserl, in, um, in, in the early 1900s, started using phenomenology as a starting point for um, the this scientific way of looking at how we interact with the world, because Husserl is famous. Well, it's famous for being a math, um, for being a background in math. So he applied that to our experiences. You know, he set up this whole system. You know, of bracketing and um, and disclose. Well, he came up with disclosing for um these uh, these events uh, that. That you know, it's it it, it kind of denies this uh, notion that you know, for how Fran- Francis Bacon said that you know, our purpose is to overcome nature, to, to you know, rule over nature. Same thing with Galileo. Same thing with Copernicus. Um, but Husserl turns that around. Instead of saying that we rule over nature, we're abided by nature's rules. That's what affects, you know, this human understanding of stuff. Okay, that happens. Uh, uh, a bunch of other minor phenomenologists happen between then, but then he teaches someone that's pretty well-known and pretty controversial, uh, Martin Heidegger, um, in which he takes what Husserl started and completely gives it a complete different spin. He, he, he throws away some stuff, and then he adds some stuff, such as linguistics, uh, aesthetics, uh, even much more metaphysical than Husserl, which is kind of hard to do. But he had this, you know, he's famous for, oh, man, he's really hard to read. But it's it's because he's basically starting a project that's separated from itself, you know. Because, we, you know, the language we use convolutes and dilutes a lot of things. That's the funny thing is that a lot of analytical philosophers are like, oh, Heidegger is hard to understand. But the funny thing is that... Uh, He's saying that we need to do away with the linguistic nature of how, you know, how we talk about things. That's why he hyphens a lot of stuff. That's why, you know, like things in itself, uh, being in the world, uh, being towards death is hyphened. Because it's a way of connecting everything in, in a manner that that's not easy to explain. But but it, once you know it, it's like it becomes pretty clear. Martin Heidegger did that. Um, and then John Paul Sartre starts his existentialism after that. Uh, and then that starts a school of uh, French phenomenologists, you know, Marlou Ponty. Uh, and then from uh, Levinas is, uh, you know, go, um, it, it's from France. And then it, it just keeps on going. And then it's like that for for a couple of decades. Then, you know, the rise of postmodernism, you know, Foucault, Deleuze and all, all that, uh, all that gang. And um, uh, phenomenology just sits in the background. But then, um, not until the 1990s, this 
this wave of like denying reality. You know, the anti-realists come back and they essentially create this, you know, this project of, oh, you know, there's no reality. It's, it's just what we experience. And then that's where new skepticism comes in and, um, uh, or, uh, or new realists and, you know, they branch off and there's this new wave of phenomenology. And, um, like, uh, currently there's a bunch of, um, feminist phenomenologists that, uh, are, are really, really good in the United States. Um, like Sarah Ahmed, the, uh, wrote a book called Queer Phenomenology. And that lays down the, that lays down a really good idea of what it means to be queer in America, but not just in America, but in, in this, in the phenomenological sense, you know, um, and then, uh, there's a bunch of other works on, 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 well, there is American phenomenology, but that's more analytical based, but it's still, well, it's not that much of an interesting read, but uh, it still follows in the tradition. And then there's Richard Roydy that, um, famously took phenomenology and not only described it in an analytical way, but he went back and forth and like from uh, analytical tradition back into phenomenology and back and forth, making it easier for people to understand. Is there a primary text you'd recommend for someone interested in learning more about phenomenology? I would recommend starting with uh, Husserl if you want the scientific version of of of, of phenomenology. Like um, I would start with uh, his um, his commentary on the Cartesian meditations, which is not that well known, but it's really good in the sense that he rejects what Descartes is, you know, about this ultimate um, sensory denial stuff that, um, you know, that he rationalizes. And um, I would start with that. And then logical investigations by him was pretty good uh, because it, because it gives an account of, of, of how we bracket things in the world and like how we could view certain events in a manner that clearly describes them and gives us the full sensory experience that 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 would otherwise remain hidden and um oh and um for like heidegger well you can start with husserl but you don't need husserl to understand heidegger but it's good to start a base because heidegger is hard to understand because you have to see where he's coming from he's basically both denying and affirming husserl in a manner that uh that's pretty hard to understand, but once you do, it's easy. It's, um, Heidegger, well, fam famously, um, um, famously, he, uh, he wrote Being in Time, uh, and, um, but I would recommend on What is Metaphysics, his, his work, uh, his, uh, his work in What is Metaphysics, and then, well, with Being in Time, there's, um, there's a good, but, um, good, uh, Secondary readings by um, by uh, Richard Dreyfus and Richard Roydy, and um, and and they provide good, clear explanations on what Heidegger is trying to get at, and um, because only, well, if like if you're just looking for, phenomenology, there's um only the beginning, the first part, the first section of of being in time, is is the core of the reading, and then, if you read, Husserl. The picture becomes even even much more clearer, and then um, you could move on to a Heidegger, uh, uh, in the work of art, and then his uh, 
his leader work the the technological um denialism stuff it's it's really really good can you contrast cartesian dualism or the subject object distinction for us well you see that like well the cartesian method um along with you know francis bacon galileo copernicus once again is about how yes science is objective but at the same time it's objective in the sense that like you know let's say i'm a scientist and i run experiments for a new cancer drug eventually i'll get it because you know that's the reason why i'm doing that um because he puts that once we know what we want we're going to eventually get it because we're searching for it that's why kind of like that's why if you notice that sometimes when uh when like there's there's always new drugs out there there's always new uh technology out there is because once we search for it, it it never stops but then you know in the cartesian method we say that it's objective we know that it's true like um like math and stuff like that like how like how he um like how well descartes adds a lot of theology in his uh in the cartesian um meditations because and husserl takes a uh, takes a uh, takes that in the Cartesian meditation because he says, you know, most of it's theology. Yeah, because, you know, like, how can we prove God? But then, you know, uh, Descartes just says, oh, you know, we know that God is good. We know that God wouldn't lie to us or something. That's that's theology. But then his thinking stuff does help a little bit in phenomenology, but he uh, Descartes limits it to ourselves. In phenomenology, we say we think stuff, but yet that's how we operate in the manner how we disclose stuff in the world. Um, and then, um, you know, from Husserl, this tradition goes on to, you know, Heider uses poetics, um, Husserl uses science, um, uh, Marlou Ponty uses the body, and, um, and so on. And, and, and these, these cogs in the machine actually do help later on form a cohesive understanding of like, oh, you know, there's much more to this than, you know, scientific uh, way of understanding the world because, you know, each experience is different. How central uh, would you say phenomenology is to your own sort of academic project? I, I do apply it in my work. Um, I apply it into the sense of, uh, of uh, late capitalism um, and uh, queerness and, uh, and desire and love because... Um, it's this weird understanding lately that um, there is this sense that, you know, oh, capitalism's here forever and stuff, but um, it each affects, it affects us very differently. Same thing with love and desire. Same thing with queerness. It's, uh, it's, it's very interesting because, you know, it, it's disclosing stuff that, like, otherwise we might not know, but it, but it also affirms ourselves on how difficult it is just to pinpoint, you know, this is the objective thing that, you know, that that's end all be all. Can you ground us a bit? I think that uh, queerness, love and desire are definitely good concepts that uh, could provide a little bit of additional clarity and context. Yeah, like desire. Um, well, you know, because of how psychoanalysis has dealt with desire, things are kind of muddy in the sense that, you know, oh, you know, like the famous Lacantian way of saying, oh, you know, it's just the lack of lack of things, the lack of not having. But then in phenomenology, 
one way to describe how it could uh could be is that you know we do things for our desire you know i have a desire to let's say uh watch a football game today but i have you know xyz to do okay so you know i i do xyz and then you know i get my desire but the thing is that it's also irrational the fact that we must do everything just for to watch that football game so you know we go about things and we're like oh man the football game doesn't start till five but i have to rake the leaves so you know it's my experience that i have to go work rake the leaves and then do that so so it's my orientation towards that and it's my performance in the in in the way that i act in order to get that desire so you know it's like um you know oh i want to spend some good money on a fancy restaurant you know i have first i have to get the money you know oh i got the money you know by working and then you know my working experience is all my own and then you know i have to choose a restaurant if i don't have a restaurant in mind you know get ready go to the place order my food and i enjoy it but the thing is that it's also it's a sensory experience in the sense that you know oh crap i spent 200 bucks on a meal but it was really you know it wasn't good you know my, my overall experience is like oh you know it's not good so it's um you know it, it ruined my my sense of uh of like oh i wanted this so you know once that desire comes back that 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 adds to it that's a phenomenological experience that you know oh it's it sucks so you know i'll just buy you know I'll buy a big mac from mcdonald's instead you know that gives me the same amount of pleasure and uh and uh and it's you know easier because you know i can only spend so much and, and such it's um its account is is similar to a way of deducing how we operate in the world that's why it goes back to the definition of emoji because you know oh we operate in these things and it's the relationship between me and the world and me between objects and oh me and between other people too um and it's and it's pretty much it and um we could start getting a sense of how things are in themselves you know like that's a hamburger and like you know i want the hamburger so you know i work for the hamburger or i do something for the hamburger like you know not to get um the uh a teleological and um and say oh you know this is the end point of this but it's more in the sense how i get in the habit of doing it and i and and and, and i get this thing that you know what happens if i get a you know it's like oh i have a desire to you know escape my escape my consciousness okay you know i do drugs i drink but then what happens if i develop an addiction that becomes ir- irrational right yeah i was tweeting about this the other day about how in an addiction we do rational things to rationalize our desire of like completed complete uh repetitiveness of this desire you know fulfilling 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 and that's a phenomenological experience in itself because you know it's it's, you know, I have to do something to get money to buy the the drugs or the alcohol or, or whatever. And then, you know, that substance becomes us. Um, and the funny thing is that Derrida wrote about this on drug use. And it's funny, even though it's a deconstruction account of what 
addiction is, it's very phenomenological in the sense that it gives a clearer understanding of like, not just, oh, it's just this, you know, or just, you know, because you want it over and over. No, it's, it's that sense of, I need it to complete me in my understanding of the world. Because ultimately, re, uh, a reality, reality is fragmented. Okay. Rarely does it come together. Right. And like, and, 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 and uh, because, you know, e- even from our point of view, rarely does it meet the point where you're like, oh, that's very clear. Because things are not clear at all. Thing, things are very muddled, very hazy. And um, that's why Sartre is famous for, you know, the, the, the nothingness that, you know, outside of consciousness is nothing, you know, not, nothing exists. So, the uh, the interesting part is that we could go there and say, you know, it's it these things, you know, the, these objects, this phone, this table are just, you know, things. But then it, it gets interesting because it's like, how do we interact these things, you know? And um, and 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 that's a more uh, grounded example of, of of what I try to do when I speak about from um, the phenomenology of desire, because um. Once you start a grounding, you can work your way up and see these fascinating things that are like, oh, you know, that yeah, that only happens to a certain amount of people, right? But yet, it's it's a disclosing to everyone else that you know this is something that happens. You kind of anticipated my next question a little bit there. Um, I've actually read that Derrida had drawn heavily from Heidegger. Um, tell us a little bit about the application of phenomenology to late stage capitalism. Oh, the late stage capitalism concept is um pretty interesting, because um. In a way, it's, well, it's a bit of a Marxist understanding of late late stage capitalism in the sense that you know, um, it's extracting capital, it's extracting labor from all of us to the point of exhaustion, but it's also a way of how phenomenology tells us that you know some things are not what they seem in the way for others. Meanwhile, others see it completely different. And um, uh, like currently I'm working on a paper on how um, late stage capitalism in film has somewhat shown us that the disclosingness of, 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 of what it means to be living in late stage capitalism in film. Like um, I used examples of uh, the children of men and, uh, and the virgin suicides. Um, because you know, in the Children of Men, it's famously dystopian. Uh, Mark Fisher makes it very, very clear that you know, it's a good example to see. Oh, you know, people would rather imagine the end of the world than, and and into capitalism. But the movie in itself is a good, good way of seeing. You know, this is the late last stage of capitalism, and after that, you know, everyone dies off. But that's you know, that's the ultimate objective late stage. But um. But uh, in in my paper, I I argue how the how the film does these long no edit sequences that tells us how time is differentiated within late stage capitalism, because you know all uh, all our time is atomized. We clock in at eight, we clock out at five. We we watch TV. You know what? We get home, we watch TV, we have dinner, we sleep, and then it's back to work. You know, it's all these atomized, um, and then with like the 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 rise and conquering of, of of the of the side gigs. So you know, like Uber, uh, Lyft, Uber Eats, and uh, 
all, all these things, Grubhub, um, it, it, it's made, it's made the way how we handle time very differently. And the movie does that really good, even though the movie came out in, 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 in 2008, uh, it's, it, 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 it's a good way that it foreshadowed that how our time was going to be spent about how time became, uh, time in itself, you know, how like it, st- it stopped being objective and it became this subjective notion of like, oh, I did this for a certain amount of time and that's, that's the compu- uh, the, the compilation of everything else that I've done and you know, that, that's barred together and that's how I get paid or that's how I receive something and, um, and uh, it's pretty interesting because I, I also talk about how how the body is controlled, not in the uh, Foucaultian manner of like, oh, you know, it's just to extract uh, power and uh, and, um, and, uh, and and the relations that it has, but rather I say it's the way that we control the body to control the phenomenological experience. Because, you know, it's like it's the whole, you know, uh, foil hat, oh my God, they want us to all think the same, all feel the same, but the thing is, they can't, but, but they could try it, they could try to box us in, make us, make our perspectives, you know, very narrow, and, um, sometimes it does work, uh, through, you know, media manipulation, propaganda, but, um, but, uh, it, it comes down to, uh, like, in, like, in reproduction, you know, like, uh, like, re- reproductive rights, oh, no, you know, if you give them birth control, uh, uh, oh, the women are gonna, are gonna, you know, go around having sex, that that's a way to control the body and and control the experience that we have. Like let's say someone someone now you know let's say someone in confidence tells you oh you know I'm taking birth control. Because of the propaganda, because of the things that we're fed, we're told oh you know that's bad. So you know our perspective is sh- is shifted. It tells us oh you know that's bad. That's a negative connotation. So that that fate, like like how Heidegger says uh, about untruths and truths that pushes the truth of oh you know birth control could be used for, you know, good. It's not just a contraceptive, you know, it's for hormonal control or, like, period changes or anything. So, you know, just push it. It pushes it to, it pushes it back to untruth. And then it, it what, what's left is, oh, my God, bad, birth control is bad. Boo. And then, um you know, that happens today. But then in children and men, that's used for, um, to control the refugees and, and, and to control everyone else because, you know, they can't have babies, so, you know, therefore, we, we must preserve what we have. That's why we see this objective... No, no, we see this this reification between, oh, my God, we're going to all die and society's going to wipe out. And then it turns it into a subjective manner of, we need to preserve this, no matter what. Yeah, because in the movie, it makes no sense that they're denying refugees, and yet, you know, they're all going to die. Yeah, because it, you know, it could famously turn into one of those hedonistic, oh, let's just enjoy life for right now. No, no, it's this complete troll, this complete trolling of like, of 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 of, of control of everything, and and you know that denies the 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 phenomenological experience to everybody, and then time itself is is turned to you know it's turned into this objective once again reification, of of time into an objective manner into a subjective manner, that and then it you know. It all goes downhill, and the and the film does that. Uh, the the film does that in a great manner of of, of shows showing us how time is construed, how time is somewhat 
in real time, but yet in time that makes us relate to, oh, you know, these shots are long. So, you know, they, 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 they create a phenomenological response to us and tells us, oh, you know, this, this is almost, almost real life. Almost a way of emerging a truth. And, well, I do believe that a truth emerges and, and it tells us, oh, you know, this is bad, you know, uh, uh, prejudice is bad and um, late capitalism is bad. And um, so I say the same in Divergent Suicides, but I take it a step further because um, because uh, as um, Simone, uh, Simone de Beauvoir is famous for, you know, the second sex and all that. Um, and it's kind of insidious how in, in, in the film it still tells us, you know, oh, you know, we control the bodies of uh, of, of of the women in our lives by, you know, denying them, no, you cannot go outside, no, you cannot talk to boys, no, you cannot do this, and and, and yet they rebel. And um, and in that rebellion, that's a phenomenological experience because, you know, we desire what, what that object, no matter what, because we need to have it, even though it's, even though it, um, it could be detrimental, but, um, but the thing is, I separate the psychoanalytic, the psychoanalytical sense of that and I say that it's more of phenomenological connection of of connecting us between that that object and us. Do you find that applying philosophical context concepts rather to film is a good way to ground things a bit? I definitely think it lends itself to that sort of analysis, grounding concepts like this in, in sort of a narrative structure. I think eases or I don't know. There's something about that that's very powerful when. Um, when you apply those sort of ideas to any kind of narrative and you can actually kind of see them applied them applied in sort of a an actual maybe a social context uh yes it does because um as Heidegger writes in uh in the origin of the work of the art uh well even though he's talking about fine art but it could be applied to uh uh any other art such such as film um in the sense that you know yes you know, it's it's printed on film. Yes, it's shot with a camera. Yes, they use foam bricks for you know to show rubble. But yet, what comes together is this idea that what's done in the film is disclosing a truth about the world. And um, well, that's the most simplistic idea. Well, because he goes on and on about uh, the uh, the denial of Aristotelian uh, causes. Um, well, material causes of stuff, but um, this the film is the final form of itself within itself. You know, like, like yeah, you could have a movie that's like Transformers. You know, all oh, Transformers, it's it's crap. But the thing is, it tells us more about ourselves as a society and about ourselves as people, the same way that an art piece would. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because you know, like, oh, you know, like, oh, the whole highbrow low stuff and just classic stuff, but, but it's, but each each work, each piece of film tells us something that was previously previously hidden from us, but now it's shown. That's why I chose Children of Men and The Virgin Suicide, because um, yes, they're good, both really good films, but they also show this 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 notion that would rather be hidden from us. Yeah, because you know. I'm not sterile, I'm not, you know, you know, I, I mess up one time and then, whoops, I'm a father. But, um, 
But uh, but the, but the thing is, once that's added, once that information's added, we're enveloped in we're enveloped in the universe, and then it tells us these truths of like, oh, you know, you can't have kids, or oh, you lost your kid because of the 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 the, the catastrophe of of, of, what, of what happened, and you know, now everything's dying and and such. So you know, we're we're uh, we're driven to do things, and um. And, and and that's why in in philosophy it's easy to take from film novels art these aesthetic things because they ultimately do condense a message and a view of the world i think there's an interesting parallel in my everyday of experience of life or being there's this sort of objective sense of time for example like in seconds tick off the clock in a sort of consistent pattern but there's a subjective element on how I experience the passing of time. Time can slow down or speed up depending, like in a car wreck, things slow down or in other cases speed up. And uh, this is very interesting when applied to film because in the production aspect, you know, those things can speed up or slow down. The experience of that based on, you know, really long drawn out shots without cuts or very, you know, fast-paced cuts in the editing. Um, and the long takes, I think, in Children of Men are a great example of this. Um, and I think maybe that distinction or that that difference between, you know, speeding time up or drawing things out is um, maybe a good way to understand, um, I guess, the subjective elements of phenomenology. Oh, yes. Yes, because um, Heidegger's famous for saying, you know, there, there is chronicle, chronological time do not exist, does not exist, um, only temporarily, you know, things are closer to us than other things, you know, like, like, I'm clo I'm closer to, let me see, I'm 27, I'm closer to my birth now than to, than, oh, to, let's say, my death of old age, okay, so, you know, I could say that, but then, if, because there's this weird notion of how we, you know, we have clocks, we have digital clocks, we see time in a linear fashion and um and you know how all the yeah the past is the past but the future is not completed or you know there yeah like well in, analy in anal analytic philosophy there's this whole you know uh time time thing about how oh is it a spotlight is it a is is the past the past is the future already made and such and such but um Heidegger rejects that and just says you know it's like a like it's, it's like jumping into a pool some things are closer to us than you know other things. You know, I I, I go on the shallow end, and you and you know these water molecules are closer to me, but yet these water molecules are across from the pool are very far away. That's that notion he applies to uh, being towards uh, being towards death, in in the sense that you know don't be inauthentic, don't be thinking about death, in in the sense that makes you do stuff that you wouldn't do to fulfill your life, and um but in film, this is very unique because. Film, you see, like how you said, distorts time in a way that makes it relevant because, you know, some things take longer. You know, car, a car wreck or if you're playing a video game, you're like, oh, you know, I'm only going to play an hour. And it turns out you play for six hours. Oh, you think you're going to like, this thing is going to be quick because, you know, it's 30 minutes, but it, it feels long. It feels like an hour or two, you know, like, like, oh, you fell asleep for a little bit and you wake up. And you're like, oh, you know, I, I only wait, oh, went to sleep for a couple of minutes. Nope. You slept for five, six hours straight, and um, it's this sense of 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 how time 
actually plays a role in how we sense things. But if in phenomenology, that's the that's the thing is like what the role of time has on us is it well is our experience. And film lends itself to this. That's why in Children of Men, I I I talk about the, these long shots because these the well life is nothing but one long shot, right? It just <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's no edits. There's no cut. Well, it depends if you fall into a coma or anything. But you know, it's it, it's no. Uh, no, we no, we don't have edits. We don't have cuts. But yet, by doing that, it shows us that within the film itself, we're living in the film. Um, and uh, that's what makes it very unique, and that's why I talk about it. And um, and I would like to see that m- more in film because it's. Because well, even though we see it in real life, it it lends itself to telling us, you know, this is what this is what's emerging, and this is this is the truth. Like um, Heidegger uses the word uh, aletheia. It, it, in, in the Greek um, etymology, it um, it means emergence or uh, or uh, unveiling or uncovering, and 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 it's this sense that you know it's uncovering something that we don't know, well, something that we don't know because it's been hidden, but now it shows us it shows us itself and now we're like ah you know that's you know that sequence showed us that you know his desperation because you know he's running away from 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 all the gunfire and like he's carrying the baby and stuff oh spoilers well he's carrying the baby and like um and um and stuff and like you know you know the whole place is sterile so you know it's a sequence of like him seeing it because you know he's he's like oh crap it's a baby and um that's why it lends itself really really good and and as a medium, film can do that. And uh, that's why that that's why it, it, it lends itself to everything, and it's a uh, phenomenological experience, and and and, and that's why I, pre- I pretty much appreciate it. I want to mention two films that you might might be interesting to analyze: Russian Ark and Birdman. Russian Ark is a film that's a single take for the entire film, and then Birdman kind of simulates that same idea, but. Birdman actually has a number of cuts that are distinct and they simulate some of that um, aspects of the long takes but Russian Ark is literally an entire film that is one shot one single take that was done which is pretty amazing oh yeah Birdman's good but I haven't heard of the other one but uh yes yeah. <laughs> send me the therefore I'll, I'll, I'll look at the Russian ones um, but um yeah Birdman's a good example because we're seeing life as not a narrator, but more close to the first person view, but but in between first person and second person. So you know, it's it's close enough, and um, and and it's interesting that this is the style they use to portray films that are about you know this sense of lost madness, and it's pretty interesting because because in either way. Each things are happening without, you know, without our knowledge. You know, there's people going crazy all the time. There's people, you know, losing people all the time, you know. You see someone one day, then the next day, oh, they're not here, you know. Or, yeah, because we still have memories, and that's, and, and, and that's the cool part. Because, um, because even Husserl himself would say that um, the way we experience stuff is, 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 is through slices, right? Like, like you know, like um, like uh, someone that plays a, a song, right? You know, they play the music and such, and 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 each note is a slice. You know, 
it's just it's just one note. So, so if you put together all the notes, you have a song, oh, a melody, and 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 that's how we view the world, and that's how memory is too. You kind of touched on this a bit, but I wanted to mention the idea of time passing as we age, with years becoming less and less a percentage of our of our lives. We get this sort of weird sense of time speeding up as we age. True, true. Um, because you know, we well, let's say we live to eighty and stuff. We're looking back at our lives. We set aside the notion that oh, you know, memories could be false, memory could be doctored. But you know, let's say. I think of myself right now, 27, you know, I'll, I'll think about going to school, I'll think about how I got to school and stuff like that, and there'll be segments, you know, that, I, oh, you know, I was, I boarded the BART at 7, 7 a.m. and stuff like that, but yet, you know, it's, it's me doing that during the whole day that I think back, and that's, you know, just a slice, you put together a slice, you know, and then we get this whole melody of what happened, it's kind of like the whole recounting stuff, you know, it's, um, because it's it's interesting because in 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 aesthetics, this is kind of important because it's like, what do we know that's beautiful? But the thing is, I think that to to a step further with homology and say you know how we know it's beautiful, in the sense that once we perceive it, we know it, and it's fleeting too, because you know, this time that I see a beautiful flower, oh you know it's beautiful, but then I come back tomorrow and you know it's gone or it's dead. And, 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 and that moment is in my memory, but it still slices. It still slices and it's still there, but it's fleeting. And um, and uh, that, that's why we appreciate it because, you know, it's fleeting. It's always there. So is life. You know, life is fleeting. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be 27 forever. I'm, I'm getting older as we speak right now, but, but, you know, it's fleeting and we just have to enjoy it. And we have to, and, and how we experience it also is very different. I've recently been thinking a lot about writing a screenplay that focuses on eternal life and the desire for eternal life because we have this sort of assumed positivity associated with immortality. But what I'm one I'm interested in delving into is what happens when one actually experiences things in that context without the extremes of joys and sadness. How is our experience or phenomenology fundamentally altered a being can that cannot die would be radically different because you know it it it, it throws you know the the notion that we have to do stuff now because you know we're all oh, tomorrow you might not be here and such and such or or throws the notions of living authentically into the trash because a being that cannot die is going to experience stuff you know crap you know they could experience right now then you know, they spend a thousand years going going on and then, you know, they're like, oh, look, transhumanism happened or, or look, the, I'm interacting with an AI god or something. And, um, and, 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 and it's this weird notion that since we're humans and we're fixed as humans in our perspective, something that cannot die is beyond being human. Right. Okay. Yeah, and that's the kind of weird thing, like, hey, can we... Can we know? Yes, it gets to the, like it gets into the whole debate about like, oh, can we ever know anything outside of the human perspective? But that's the thing is that once we stop being human, it stops being muddy. And like that muddiness is kind of weird because like yes, I could say a phenomenological experience of you know, this is what it means to live forever. This is what it means to experience things that humans have not experienced. But that's the weird thing. It's like that's why once AIs and uh or 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 robotic and ham. Enhancements happen at a full scale. It'll be 
it'll be a new sort of phenomenology that we're experiencing. Okay. Because it'll be a phenomenology of that AI that's living through. Okay. Yeah. What I'm most interested in exploring is the desire for immortality. But then let's say you get immortality and but you want to die but you can't yeah that's the more the uh, uh, of the uh, of the analysis of desire from a lacanian psychoanalytic uh, view because you know oh you want death because it's something you lack but then in the uh, but then in the phenomenological sense death is not the end point you know there is no end point oh well, well that's implying that, that that he's both in invincible and and immortal but you know, like, let's say he can't die any other human... Like, any means on Earth, he cannot die. Like, the only way that he could die is to being shot into, like, into the sun. Okay. You know, let's say that there's no technology to shoot people to the sun. So, you know, it's, it's just him, or him or her, living. Li living forever, you know. Oh, he sees the rise and falls of civilization. Because, you know, he could say, Hey, you know, that civilization that rose 1,500 years ago is the same one that rose... Uh, no, it's, it's almost the same as... The one I did a thousand years ago and such, and like, um, he he could correlate these experiences, but then you know, imagine him explaining that to someone else. Someone else is gonna be like, this dude is like a god. So well, yeah, like well, what's gonna keep him from worshiping? No, but they're gonna be like, oh, you know, oh, you know, this this is something I cannot relate to. And, and well, and even that experience of not relating the phenomenological experience because they're gonna be like, how do I compare in in immortality? immortal being to my life that I know that I'm going to die and I could die at any moment. So, you know, I, oh, I, oh, I could live life to the fullest or, you know, I could be authentic to myself. I could, you know, be a better person. But then, you know, because imagine how miserable that person's going to be that lives forever. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not just the... Well, 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 that's one thing that we could see is that the misery in seeing friends die and making new ones and then seeing them die... Like, it might get to the point where he makes no friends at all. Right. He might be, you know, he might be a hermit. He might go live in the mountains for forever and ever and ever until, like, until the, until the sun blows up or something. There are two comic book character, characters that I think exemplified this, both of them written by Alan Moore, one being Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen and the other being Swamp Thing from Saga of the Swamp Thing. Oh, yes. Um, I watched the film Watchmen, but I, I'm not familiar with the comic books. But um, yeah, well, I've heard good things about them. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, that'll be interesting to read um, and 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 to break down in a fem, in a phenomenological sense, because um, for me, what comes to mind is uh, the ancient Greek uh, stories, myths, and then it comes to um, comes to mind is like, let me see, what was it? There was also a uh, vampire movie that came out not long ago called. Dracula Untold that kind of deals with similar themes. It took the historical character of Vlad Tepes and has him meet this vampire in this cave and the idea of this of the vampire existing or inhabiting in this liminal space between mortality and divinity. Yeah, it reminds me of um, Ghost in the Shell. About how you know, it's well, 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 it is an AI, but yet it's still creeping itself into human humanness, into this whole idea that that um, if you take a life and you put it in a robotic body, like how the film implies that you know people are just living on and on and on. It's this notion that what you experience 
the fullness of life, be it a you know a continuous uploading, uploading, and uploading. Um, but what happens when once you start deleting those people? What happens to when you stop start ending those people? You give them a sense of of uh, finitude, as famously put by Heidegger. This and and in, in this finitude, you get um an actual sense of life, an actual sense of of phenomenological perspective. That's like okay, this is the end, and that's it. And um and uh, yeah and and the uh, and the vampire that you brought up re- reminds me of um an interview with a vampire about how yeah yeah about how you know miserable they were yeah yeah they were vampires well it was cool at the beginning but then they're like towards the end it was just sad and like boring yeah because yeah you could feed on people yeah you could create vampires but yet you know what's the point of it and I think that's how that's why I think the ending of of of, of uh, interview with a vampire is like so kind of unfulfilling of like the sense that oh you know yeah he gets to die one day nope it's he gets to live on and you know maybe he's in this decade now and like he's experiencing new things but but um yeah it's this weird sense of of how our own mortality is well not in the Sartrean sense that you know our own mortality is our own but our own mortality is something that we look forward to you know it's like this is it, and that's it. My own existential dread is over my own finitude and the sense that I've died and simply haven't experienced it yet. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. But, like, one, the funny thing is that I'm the opposite. I'm like, hey, what if we actually do get to upload our consciousness into computers and stuff like that? I'm like, living over and over, I'm like, oh, that's not something I want to do. Right. I'm like, well, I'm like, what experience is enough, right? Like, <laughs> but like, like, imagine living in this world over and over and, oh, and over yeah. again like 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 and we don't know how bad climate change is going to get we don't know if hey we're going to have an economic collapse again or or things are going to get really bad again or we're going to have a complete you know uprising and stuff but um to live that over and over like but but the thing is we get the sense of how we get to have uh, our enjoy our life in the nietzschean sense of the eternal return you know that demon comes into a room and tells us well how did you live your life and then you know we'll just live it but the thing is, we have to love the experiences, even the bad ones, and appreciate what what we learned and like, almost what we suffered through. You know, right. like yeah, like you know, like we've we've had bad breakups, we've 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 had you know losses, but then we we uh, we have to savor those sweet moments. You know, hey, you know those those short short weeks that that uh, that you were madly in love with someone, and and now you're broken up now you're sad now you're mourning but the thing is imagine if the, imagine if the eternal return is true you'll get to relive relive them again and again and again yes you'll get the heartbreak you get the melancholy but then you get that sweet sweet blissful moment yes it's a slice of time but you know over and over that's hey that actually does sound good and, and it does sound worth it at the end because yes yes there's well you know, it accompanies misery, but it's but it's always worth it, you know. For me, this brings to mind the concept that we need the contrast of happiness and sadness for either of them to sort of exist in our in an experiential or phenomenological eh, phenomenological context. Oh, true, because it's 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 the in the phenomenological sense, it's the way that we attune ourselves to the world, because you know. Um, once again, in Heideggerian terms, we view the world 
with ourselves, but yet our mood determines how we view the world, you know. You know, we might get in a bad mood because, you know, the boss yelled at us. Or they, you know, they took out money when I forgot to uh, cancel that subscription or something. You know, that happens. And uh, But the thing is that we view the good stuff in our good stuff. That That's why memories, like I said, you know, could be distorted and stuff. Because, you know, it, it, like nostalgia makes everything look good, but yet, you know, things could be bad. But, but, but yet at the same time... In real time, in real experience, these good moments do feel good. And yes, eventually things end. Yes, things do come to an, uh, come, come come to a bitter end. But it's not just that dichotomy, but it's also the co- like this this tension between both of them that arise. This actual good like experience. Yeah, because, yeah, some things suck. You know, like, oh, I was walking down the street and I got shot or something. <laughs> but, you know, everything before that was good. But then that moment, you know, wait, wait against everything else. Is it better or is it worse? You know, it, for us, it could be worse. But, you know, it could, better, it could be better for someone else. So, so, it, so in a sense, yes, it's this, you know, you have to have the sadness for the happiness. But you also have to weigh each other, not as equals, but more as more as a sense that they're connected yeah because like you could get on the uh, all pessimistic on nihilistic and say oh you know what's the point is it going to be bad or you could affirm it and you could say yes to life you, you could say yes to you know oh this feels good for right now but you know it's gonna suck later on like drinking you know <laughs> why do we drink yeah. why do we drink it, it it feels good at the moment but then you know we know that in the morning it's you know suck it's gonna suck really bad we're gonna wish we never drank, but yet we, we we do it again the next Saturday or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, because you know it ties into the whole. Oh, we're just trying to escape. No, it's it's more we're trying to see things as they are in the sense of our relation to the world. And you know we 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 do irrational stuff with desire, but it, desire itself is fluid it's it's it it, it gives it you know it sticks its tentacles everywhere it, it claws into us you know it's a like it's like a tick it's not well well because you know in the in the traditional sense you know desire is either one thing or another you know it's like a solid thing you know it's either there or not but you know like in, like in the delusion sense it's everywhere it's like liquid it's, you know gets into everything it's like a bad rainstorm you know it rains on us our clothes is wet, our skin is still wet, you know, there's still moisture, there's there's still atoms and particles on our skin. That's that's how desire is in the delusion sense. But but I, I would like to think that's the same thing of, of, of how desire is in a philo- in a philological sense. Because even though, you know, I fulfilled it or or I got denied it or it doesn't exist, it's still there. There's a little bit of, of it there. Even if it's minuscule, it's still there. Is there anything you'd like to add to help us understand or contextualize phenomenology? One interesting sense would be that uh, we could view it in a strictly material sense, but then it gets murky because, like, then then you just start uh, atomizing everything towards, oh, you know, it's just neurons, it's just chemical reactions. But like, like, yeah, chemical reactions, you know, oh, you know, love, like, like, like it's a whole, oh, love is just a chemical reaction, or like, or uh, or um, pleasure is just a chemical reaction. But no, 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 it's. It's more of that. It draws into us. It it, it, it it we we extract stuff from it. And and, and that's an important note. Um 
because uh, people tend to be fatalistic about you no know, experiences and stuff because you know there's people that are like oh you know they could just plant memories in us like like uh, one another film example like in Blade Runner twenty forty seven no twenty forty nine um, about how you know oh memories could be fake or memory but the thing is that it's not that the it's not that the memories are implanted to be fake it's the memories are implanted to make them experience life in a way that tells them that ex- their experiences are valid. Hmm. Interesting. More of an and, affirmation uh, than an yeah. Huh? Yeah, yes, it's a it, it's an affirmation of oh, you know, oh you're alive, you know, you're oh you're not a replicant. You were born or you or something like that. And um and, and the point thing is it, it's it it's the way the whole way that the film develops is basically affirmation, negation and affirmation again. It's a dialectic. And and, and 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 in a way, it's 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 this it's this view of, of of the world that like we could create replicants and beings, but yet we cannot deny their experiences once they're born. Yeah, you could put implant memories. You could tell them, "Oh, you're made in a lab," but then you know the whole point of the movie is that miracles happen. You know, like the whole replicant human baby thing. It's like, oh, you know, miracles happen, but yet it's not just a miracle it's more this this way of how experience and how memories tie into each other in a way that that second guesses us but at the same time it also affirms us you know you could wipe out someone's memory and they'll be completely different right um like um like uh like that one movie with uh what's his name um oh, uh, like oh, Jason Bourne maybe like that kind of Jason Bourne or, or or um or that one movie with Jim Carrey where he uh gets his memory oh, yeah, wiped because yeah. yeah Eternal Sunshine yeah. and the Spotless Mind oh. yes yes yeah just like that one you know oh you know oh they fall in love with each other again but like what if they don't what if like you know a completely different person what if like you wipe someone's mind and they turn into you know Hitler 2.0 or something or um because it's 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 this weird notion that oh people are fixed you know that that objective, oh, they'll be the same. They'll be the same no matter what. But um, no experiences shape them. Exp- like how they view the world shapes them, and then you know that shapes per personality. Mood shapes how they shape the world. So it's like you know it's it's completely different. You know um, and uh, and it's and it and it kind of goes into the Heideggerian sense of 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 care. You know like we live for the people we care about. And like life ultimately might be about surrounding ourselves with the people we care about. Because have you noticed how even in isolation we still care about people and we still think about them. Yeah, you could be completely isolated. You could completely hate everybody in your life, but yet you're still remembering them. You still long for them. Not in the lack sense, but in the sense that that the way that you experience them, the way that they relate to your sense of in, 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 in objects between them. Is 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 how we view the world, no matter what. So you know, let's say like, oh, my partner, you know, I I I I remember them for you know seven years, but then you know, oh, they left me, but yet I I'm still there with those ways that we interacted, the way how they interacted with objects, and like it's something like that that that's the truth. You know, like I might know someone's side that you you may not know, or vice versa. You know, I I can't be like, oh, you know, Cooper's partner is like, oh, you know, totally fine. In public, but then you know they could be terrible in private, and vice versa. Oh, um, like 
That way, you know someone and I don't know someone, so it's, you know, blocked up from each other. It's really interesting that you mentioned Blade Runner 2049, because my take on the original is the replicants are given implanted memories that are a sort of metaphor for culture or and or ideology, and this acts as a sort of scaffolding. So um, there's a certain fiction driving their lives as well as our own. Oh yes, and you see the dichotomy between what uh, what uh, K feels about his past, but then about how Descartes feels about his past. Like when they reveal the 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 replicant of Rachel again, and how how he remembers. Oh no, her eyes were green. That's a memory, and that's an interaction between them that he not only remembers but he discloses it. Yes, because even, um, I forgot his name, the, uh, well, even the, like, well, the blind guy, we, I forgot his name, um, uh, like, you know, they're just like, oh, we'll just start all over, you know, and they shoot the uh, Rachel 2.0 and, you know, but, um, it's about that memory, it's about that disclosiveness of the world. Because, yeah, you go implant memories in someone, give them a scaffolding for consciousness and stuff like that. But, like, famously, how Hegel put it, as soon as we start being conscious, we start to kind of tear apart at what, what things are. You know, it's like, the, like, it, it's like opening a present, you know. I could tell, you know, it's a square. I could tell, you know, the, 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 the packaging is a box or, like, or a ball or a guitar. Uh, oh, I could see the paper that, you know, the, the the paper itself is baby blue and it has a bow on it, it has a card on it. But the thing is, we don't know the contents of the inside. The thing is that, like, in Blade Runner, it's funny because they implant memories, but yet the replicants know that the me memories are implanted. So the, so they're like everything, well, once they've been told that, you know, that's a disclosure too. That's that's an, an, an emergence of truth. They're like, okay, you know, everything else was a lie. So why not? Let me begin my new life, or, or, or you know, in the Sartre, in the Sartrean sense, oh, you know, I, I decide my birth. You know, this is the the new, you know, K and stuff. Oh yeah, it happens. Yeah, the K's are like this is new K. Um, yeah, I, hunt, I hunted down replicants, uh, but you know, this is this is the new. You know, it's the it's like it's it's basically that meme, the whole good Joe meme, but like it's 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 done in film and in real life. You know, you know, like. He, he could be the hero, but he could also be do do nothing. But yeah, he chooses to be the the hero, and that's why it's so so it's so symbolic of the of the ending where you know he dies on the steps with snow because you know it 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 it's about the sense of like he gave himself for a cause that he didn't perceive as you know good or anything in the beginning, but as soon as that emergence happened, he was like, okay, I'm gonna do it. And, and and the funny thing is that his his friends, you know, like the uh, like 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 the captain and stuff like that, died for him in the sense that protecting him because it was it, it was that relationship and that and, and that um, relation between objects between subjects, you know, their friends. So you know, therefore he protected them, even though he uh, even though uh, K knew that. Pursuing it was very dangerous. That's sort of a callback to the original with Roy Bat Batty saving Deckard. 
I always argued that there's this Christ metaphor present, but also this sort of Nietzschean, Ubermenschian thing going on when he transcends his own death and becomes human by by saving Deckard's life. Well, he's well, he's yeah, affirming, liminality. well, he's affirming his humanness. Right. Yeah, like you know the whole, uh, more hu- more human than human. It's you know it's told all over like well it's all, well it's always told you know Tyrell more human than human, and the whole well. Depending on that, you know, give me life, father, or or, or uh, or more life, fucker. Yeah, or I want more. I want more life, fucker. That's, you know, that's that's a really big dichotomy. But at the same time, it plays into the sense that that um, Rory was, in a sense, trying to extend the life. You know how you were talking about how that immortal being? Imagine being born and you only have four four years to live. And 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 out of those four years, you're used as a tool of someone else. You know, you're, it's the whole slave-master dialect. And, um, yes, you overcame the master, but yet, you know, you're still going to die. And, and and at the end, saving Descartes was, was not just an affirmation for Descartes, but it, but, it, but it's an affirmation for self. And it's also that redemptive quality. Yes, he killed a lot of people. Yes, he, you know, did what he did on the, on the shoulders of Orion and stuff like that. But yet, it's still this need for understanding this need for truth like how you said in, in this Nietzschean sense maybe he did well maybe he did overcome you know but yet there was still an end to be met maybe he actually did you know just say you know as his finger started to uh um cramp because of his uh impending death maybe he just accepted you know this is this is death and like i've i i need to be authentic with myself and you know i i i, I took it for what it is Time to die. <laughs> yeah, time to die. Yeah, like the whole tears in the rain stuff, you know. Does it really matter what we do? That's why, like, we, well, it gets into, into the whole nihilism stuff, but yet it's enough to affect Descartes uh, to say, you know, well, they are human after all. Well, he did leave, well, depending on the attitude, well, he did leave with Rachel. So, you know, that's, so something did change there, and that's good storytelling on uh, on the part that something did change in Descartes and then, you know, we see that continuation in Blade Runner 2049. And that's why you see um, Descartes separate himself from the whole um, resistance of the, of the replicants. Not just to protect himself, but to protect, protect everybody else. And, like, you know, he was just living life because he was basically changing the manner that changes perspective, changes outlook, changes the way that he sees the relations of things. Yeah. Yeah. In the original Blade Runner, I saw in the replicants a metaphor for the the commodification of labor, and culture being the scaffolding for our own servitude to the hegemony of the global capitalist system. Oh, exactly, exactly. You know, you you have Rory, the soldier model. You have um, uh, the the female replicant, the pleasure model. Then you have the other guy that dies in the beginning of the film that uh, is shown as a construction model. So you know. These people are basically the, 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 the ones that they extract labor for. You know, they're they all serve a purpose solely for labor, nothing else. You know, they probably don't even well. Well, they probably give them you know leisure time, quote unquote. But imagine, you know, they're superhuman. They're they're you know more human than human. You know, they they, they don't need to sleep. They don't need to eat. So you know, they could just keep on working and working and working. 
But like, imagine that actualization once they realize, hey, we could be something more than ourselves. That's the overcoming. That's the emergence of like, oh crap, you know, this is um, you know, like a, uh, you know, it's like the madman running down the street. You know, God is dead. You know, and 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 but things that men himself has men himself fix himself, especially Tyrell. Tyrell fixed himself as God. You know, he well, he basically lives in a pyramid, so you know, he fixed himself as God. And the uh, Rory and the Replicant Gang is basically saying, you know, let's overcome God. Let's, you know, let's see what he has for us in the sense that, you know, hey, I want more life. You know, I want, I want to live. I want to, you know, do things. You know, in the end, he tells them what? Like, he tells them, no, we, we put a gene in you for the same reason. Uh, oh, no. We, no, we can't fix that because, you know, there's no other way to fix it. You know, like... Like, like, let's say we face God today. You know, let's say God in whatever sense comes and down and is like, oh, Frank, you know, tell me, tell me what you want. And I tell him, well, I want to live longer. But then he tells me, well, the problem with that is that, uh, that, um, yes, I'm omnipotent. Yes, I could do this. But, um, there's a thing, you know, let's say mitochondria are like run by woo woo shit. So like, <laughs> so like, let's say mitochondria are like, take up some like magical things. And they're like, oh, but the problem is that I cannot extend my mitochondria because, you know, there's a finite amount of whatever. Or, well, well there is a finite amount of, like, of like entropy before, you know, everything ends. Let's say he uses that as an excuse. And, um, and, you know, he's like, oh, I can't let you live forever. You know, like, I don't want you to die a terrible death when the sun blows up or the, or the sun uh, collapses or, or when the sun cools down to, like, you know, where there's absolute zero in the universe. Um, and, and we're like, but we're like, like oh man you know we'll be left with the sense of like there's nothing that we could do you know like and that's the funny thing yes rory and the gang have killed people but yet in the but but, but no, no but even towards the end of the, of the great climax of the great fighting scene they're they're killing deckhart for revenge more than they're actually killing him just to kill out of the sense of you know just, just to kill someone right and, and then when once rory saves deckhart it's it, it 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 makes them human. It makes them they're basically human, and that's one thing is that it carries on into twenty forty nine. It carries on how, you know, they're living life. You know, they're living on a protein farm. You know, he's not bothering anybody. He's just living life. Um, same thing with like, with like trying to hide, uh, Deckard's uh child. You know, they're just trying to live life. They're not trying to you know, you know like what well, what well, Tyrell has a motive. Oh, oh, crap! I forgot the other. Um. Oh well the. The new company has a motive to hide all this. You know, they don't want people showing that, oh, crap, they're human after all. They're, well, they're, they're, they're like us after all. Yeah. You know, that, that would mean give them, right, give them rights and give them... And, and the funny thing is, that, like, in this whole... In this whole St. Augustine sense of, like, God himself is, like, just and stuff like that, it's kind of this contraposition between we want to enslave them, we want to keep them enslaved, but yet once people know that they're human... That's it. It's over. And, and and the funny thing is that talking about late capitalism, look at the universe of twenty four nine. It's 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 not it's not only more fucked up than it is in the original Blade Runner. It's it's a sense that capitalism itself is dying. Because you know you see the scrapyard scene in twenty four nine. You know San Diego is a scrapyard. Well, it, it already is a scrapyard, but <laughs> um um it, it's a scrapyard. It snows in L.A. Uh, there's a seawall in L.A. We don't see that in the original Blade Runner, but 
I, I I must imagine that must must have been done if the if, if the sea rose. You know, it snows in LA. It's raining. Look at uh, Las Vegas. Well, it's radioactive. Well, the backstory talks about that, but you know, it's radioactive. No one lives there. Look at the lavish grandness that that the investors did. Like, look at the uh, Chinese writing at the hotel that Descartes stays in. It's it, it's all this symbolism, all these markers of, of of how society has pushed itself for control, but yet it's so lost. You know, nature wins all. That's why to tie it back from the beginning, it's it's it's, it's nature actually. Turning in on itself and actually making itself known that you know, yes, you can control me for a bit, but I'm the one that overcomes everything. And uh, and and in that sense, that's why it's the whole, oh, you know, we must kill Deckard or we must uh, uh, kill K and like not let him know the truth because you know, once the truth is out, that replicants could have children with humans. What's that? That wall blurs, and you know, they're basically humans now. People will see them as humans, and and, and that's the fascinating sense. And, and if only Ripley Scott can do this to the Alien franchise, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, not ruin it like the other ones. Right. Yeah. You know, you'd recommended I read Mark Fisher's book Capitalist Realism, and it's interesting because I heard the other day that Nick Land had actually been Mark Fisher's mentor. And we were initially discussing doing the podcast. You'd made a pretty funny comment that uh, uh, you called Nick Land uh, the Dark Deleuze, which I thought was uh, really amusing. I forget. Oh, uh, Nick Land is Dark Deleuze, and uh, Peterson is a uh, Dark uh, uh, Leotard. <laughs> um, and in the sense that, well, because you know the whole acceleration, the whole like, let's destroy it so we could uh, go back to like, no, no, we've no. So we could approach this new thing. That in itself is very destructive, you know. It's very, um, in a sense that, like, a lot of people are going to die, you know. That's um, that's not, um, that's not, um, that's not a good thing. Um, and, uh, and yeah, like, well, and Mark Fisher, and well, the funny thing is that Mark Fisher knows this. And he, and he talks about it in capitalist, uh, capitalist realism how we could drive ourselves not just to extinction but to complete annihilation of everything. But no, but but the good thing is how he goes into the sense of how the way that we want things is very different. How capitalist realism sets itself to you know want us want want us to know instant gratification. How it tells us about our own health, mental health, and stuff like that. Like his stuff on depression is really really good. That's that's a whole subject in itself. Frank, do you find within yourself a contrast between your philosophical and political outlooks? Myself, I'm, you know, I'm very much an absurdist, existentialist, existentialist, but when it comes to politics or political economic theory, I'm more of an anarchist. Yes, like my, you know, my personal life, my political life, my philosophical life, my academic life. Well, there, um, I like to think about it like as a crystal, you know. You, you hold up a crystal to the light, a rainbow shining through, you know. And the, and the rainbow is each different aspect, but yet they merge a little bit. They merge, like, well, some merge more than others, you know. Like, my political life is is, is, is overlapped with my philosophical life. And so is my academic life. But like, like we were to view it as some, like, uneven Venn diagram, you know. They're <laughs> very uneven, like, you know, some, some things don't touch something. Well, well, because, like... 
uh, one of the comments that I always get when like I'm dating someone or I'm seeing someone or I'm talking to someone is about, oh, you know, oh, you're a philosopher, so you know, you must do this, you must do that. Oh, you're intelligent. I'm like, I tried to separate it because, you know, you know, I, I can't flex on them all the time. Um, so, so like, so like, yeah, what, what, well, the funny thing is that like, I try not to sound condescending. I try not to, you know, you know, I try not to be in, in the sense that, oh, you don't know this or like, Hey, you know, you're not an expert in that. Well, but, actually. Um, oh yeah. Oh, well, actually, you know, you know, like, um, yeah, like, 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 like I don't try to, you know, talk about psychology. I don't try to talk about, uh, you know, like nothing that I don't really understand. I just say, I don't know, you know, like, like, okay, take, okay, I'm getting my MA in philosophy, right? Take me, put me in a PhD program for engineering. I wouldn't know what the fuck to do. Right. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> same thing with psychology, same thing with stats, same thing with math. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe I could do something in English. Maybe I could do something in history, but like, but no, but there's limits. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how we see it. There's limits. And, um, and sometimes it's good to, you know, use philosophy in my personal life but sometimes it's bad because you know i i rationalize things i i over read things and like you know that gets me in trouble a lot of the time yeah yeah and it's um it's it, well, kind of hard to well it's hard to separate everything but you know i just try to keep some things away from others you know you know it's like hey let's keep the arsenic right yes it's like <laughs> let's yeah like, hey let's keep the arsenic away from the sugar we're like why put it next to each other you know you know, I'm well. I'm already bad sighted, so just imagine. Oh, you know, one day it's like, oops, I put arsenic <laughs> instead of um, sugar in my uh, in my coffee. Uh, Would you mind if I asked you a little bit about meeting Zizek? Um, Professor uh, Richard Reinhardt is um. Oh no, uh, Keith Reinhardt. You go ahead of that. Uh, Keith Reinhardt um, is uh, is professor of the complete department uh, is a professor in the complete department at UCLA and he does um also a experimental complete uh for uh, a graduate division um he's good friends with uh Zizek and uh Badeau, and that's how I met both of them oh cool through him because because he's he's shown them my work and they've given me commentary on my work and then once we, you know, I go to his, uh, because he has, because they both give lectures to, um, uh, at, um, at the art department, okay. since the art department is, is well known to be tied to these, uh, these aesthetic, uh, uh, philosophers and, you know, they give talks and like Zizek gives talks to, uh, Bodo gives talks and like, you know, we talk to each other and we, you know, that's where we start trading emails and that's how we get to know each other and such. Have you had any articles published in any philosophical or literary journals yet? 